You are listening to the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by our guest speaker, Jeff Hubing. For part two of this sermon and other LifePoint Church resources, please visit www.livethemessage.org. Good morning. And over the last several weeks, we have, as a church, been unpacking the good news of Jesus Christ, that we all need rescuing, that God alone rescues and how that is accessed through faith. It is so counter this world, the gospel of Jesus Christ, because it's not, it's not you performing, you uh, trying to uh, twist God's arm into accepting you into his kingdom. It's simply by putting your faith in Jesus Christ as sufficient Savior. It's really good news. And I'm really excited to introduce you to friends that have been an influential part of my life. And this morning is one of them, uh, Dr. Jeff Hubing, Jeff comes from Chicago, Illinois, Chicago proper, that is, um, not from the burbs, but literally from Chicago proper, and uh, just reaching the city, uh, church planter, professor, president of a school of ministry, raising up uh, world changers in the marketplace, the church, and the world. And so I'm just really excited to introduce uh, Jeff Hubing to you. So will you guys, like LifePoint does so well, will you welcome uh, Jeff for me? Testing. Probando, probando. Uno, dos, tres. Are we good? Hey, good morning. How are you guys doing today? Just going to see what I have to work with. Uh, just kidding. Yeah, uh, thanks so much, Drew and Tanya. Great to see you guys again. It's awesome to be here. I, we were trying to figure out when we met the first time at that conference in like 14 below zero in Minneapolis or wherever it was. And I think it's been 10 years, something like that. And I am really happy to be with you guys and just to see what God has led you into. And um, it's not every day that, I mean, we, we've kind of stayed in touch from a distance. And I've just, I've been so blessed by, by what God's um, directed you guys to do. And here with the church, it's, it's an adventure, but I'm pleased just to be with you guys, to be able to break open a little bit of Galatians today. Now, fair warning. I spent about five years of my life studying this book to, to write a PhD dissertation. I have a few things to say. <laughs> no, uh, the book is available on Amazon. If you know I mean. It actually is, but I'm not here to promote the book, but... I'm just saying, if it, if it sounds like, man, this guy is talking too much about this, it's probably why. So there's just a large volume of information that is, that is present to me as I, as I get into this. But my goal today, really, is more, much more specific. And that is that I've heard that you've worked your way through the first three chapters together. And so a lot of what you've seen up to this point is a combination of a little bit of rebuke, Right? Some correction that is coming the Galatians' way because of decisions they've made that are not consistent with the gospel. Right? They, they made a couple bad calls, and they're being tempted in the moment that Paul is writing to make possibly the worst decision they could make. As people who have already believed the gospel, I mean, this is the irony of it, they already believed the gospel, but something is persuading them a group of people most likely, that are trying to convince them 
that what they received was not enough. You guys saw that. Like, and, and at a certain point, Paul is telling them at the beginning of chapter 3, who bewitched you guys? Did you, you read that part already? And the literal, like the, the underlying Greek is there, like who cast an evil eye? Who gave you the evil eye? Does anybody have a culture with an evil eye? The Greeks are famous for this. There might be others. But like if someone looks at you a certain way, it's almost like they put a hex on you. This is Paul's language, like, who put a hex on you guys? I was there when you, when you believed the gospel. Remember? So he's saying, you know, Christ was publicly portrayed in front of you guys crucified. Well, how, how is this possible? And so a lot of the first few chapters find him addressing the inconsistencies of their position and reminding them, actually, of stuff that they should already know. Uh, and even that, the bulk of chapter 3 there where he walks them through the teaching of the Bible for them, the Old Testament. Like, how is it, how is it that a person is justified? And he, he introduces Abraham into the story and asks them, what does the Bible say? It says that Abraham believed God. And God credited it to him as righteousness. So what are you trying to do over here? There was, Abraham lived 430 years before Moses. There was no law. There was no observances. There was none of that. Abraham wasn't even circumcised when he was called righteous by God. You can't rely on that. So, I mean, he's just walking them through, opening their eyes to the thing that they should already know. So three chapters worth of correction and rebuke. And interestingly, the star of the show, the first three chapters, like the central personality that he focuses on in those first three chapters is well, first of all, it's Jesus, but second of all, it's himself. Did you notice that a large chunk of chapters 1 and 2 were just about himself? It's autobiographical. And now, on, on one level, you're thinking, well, well, this guy must be really full of himself. I mean, he just can't get off the subject. You know? I mean, he, he's talking about his, you know, he was converted, and he was transformed, and they keep, you know, telling what they were reporting about him, that he... The one who used to persecute them was now preaching the faith that he tried to destroy. And like, great testimony, Paul. But then he keeps going. And then 11 years later, I visited Jerusalem. I said hello to Peter and a couple of the other guys. They gave me the right hand of fellowship. They encouraged me. They said they affirmed the grace of God in my life. I'm like, hey, buddy, can we, can we move it along? <laughs> you know. And then again, chapter 2, verse 11. And then when I went to Antioch, I saw Peter. I had to, I had to oppose him to his face publicly. Because he goes in keeping in step with the truth of the gospel. At this point, you're like, bro. We, can, you know, it, it just seems like it's so much driven by his own identity and his experience. And on some levels, that makes us a little awkward. It feels a little awkward. It feels like, well, Paul, you should be pointing people to Christ. Well, okay, here's what I want you to understand. From, we're going to look at a, a passage today, this morning, Galatians 4. And I, what, what I want you to see is that from Paul's point of view, and it, this is true of him, but it's, again, it's where he's going with the whole community, with the whole letter. Jesus Christ is the absolute center of everything. But when the gospel of Jesus Christ touches the ground, that translates to a people who should look like Jesus Christ. So when he's pointing out his whole story, okay, it really is a setup 
for what he's going to call the Galatians to do in order to resolve their issues. And that process starts in Galatians 4, verse 12. So I want you to turn there. This is the first time in the letter that Paul gives them any specific exhortation about what to do. Uh, after chapter 1, verse 7, when he says, if, if people preach another gospel, let them be accursed. That's kind of a veiled imperative. But this is the first time there's a specific command that's given to the Galatians, and it functions as the headline for the second half of this letter. So really, all the way up through chapter 4, verse 11, Paul is rebuking, he's correcting, he's addressing their concerns, he's teaching. But in 4.12, he starts to urge them now to take a course of action in order to resolve the trajectory that they're on. Here's what he says. Verse 12. Brothers, and, it, and I think it's quite fair if we add sisters to the text here. It's, it's a community of male and female people. Brothers and sisters, I entreat you, my translation says. I, we could say, I beg you, I request, I'm, I'm, I want you to do this, is essentially what he's saying. I entreat you, Become as I am. Four critical words. <laughs> For I also have become as you are. You didn't do me any wrong. You know it was because of a weakness of the flesh, is the original text here, that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial for you, you didn't scorn or despise me. But listen, you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. Those are pretty strong words. When Paul came to them, they, he says, you received me as if I were him. Now, this is not idolatry. Paul is not calling them to worship him. But I want you to understand the mindset and the perspective. When you received me before, you received me as a messenger from God, like Jesus was a messenger from God. That's how you received me. What has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? You know, they make much of you. And here, here he's referring to these, he calls them the troublemakers or the agitators. who are trying to get them to get circumcised. You know, they make much of you, but not for a good reason. They don't do it virtuously. They want to lock you out so that you may make much of them. You know, it's always good to be made much of for a good reason, and not only when I am present with you. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Lord, I just ask this morning that you would give us a clearer window to perceive you. Help us to give attention to the mindset of Paul the Apostle. And may his words strengthen our own hearts, God. Give us nourishment and a vision of reality that is appropriate to the nature of what you have done for us in Christ. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I was thinking, it, it's Joe, right? When you were talking about your little daughter, 
I was thinking to myself, hang on to those moments. <laughs> no, it's just a joke, but I have four... I have four kids, the oldest is 16, and then they go uh, 13 and a half, 12, and 8. And I think anybody that's raised a family is like looking at Joe when he's sharing, saying, oh yeah, the, the, gold, the golden age. You know, the good old days when they can't really do anything. You know, I mean, but here's the thing. Part of parenting, I have some gray hair, you noticed that, right? Part of parenting is the simple delight in your children. It really is, and I absolutely affirm what you were sharing, bro, because as a father, there's nothing that excites me or makes me happier than when I'm seeing my kids and they're, they're, they're flourishing, they're, even sometimes when they're fighting, I just laugh. I mean, my wife doesn't like it. <laughs> she doesn't like, she doesn't really like the conflict, and she'll go in there right away and try to settle it. I'll just let it go. I'll let it play out. Like, all right. I, I grew up in a family of five. Like, it's, just, it's not the end of the world. They need to learn how to deal with this kind of stuff. But when you're parenting, you got that sense of just delight, joy. Man, you look at your kids, you're like, I can't believe these jokers. They're the best. They're awesome. And then there are the moments like Galatians 4.19. I am perplexed about you. I'm not trying to disown you. I'm trying to throw you out the house, but I do not understand what you're doing. Toddlers are the worst with this. <laughs> because they, you can't even reason with them. And, th and then they're doing things that just are, don't, they don't seem like they should be coming from a small human like that. <laughs> so I think, like, there's a window. You know, there's the infant stage where it's just, you know, unless they wake you up in the night. But even then, you're just kind of, oh, that's, that's sweet. But the toddlers and then the teenagers cause the most... <laughs> Those are the most periods of angst, I believe, as a parent. Paul is, uh, Paul is looking at these Galatians like a father looks at his kids when they're making decisions that are not consistent with their identity. You know how in your family you have a kind of a culture, right? You have things that you do, little, you know, idiosyncrasies that... Anybody have stuff like that? Like, if people found out, they'd be like, I can't believe you did. You know, I, I mean, some of them are just harmless. Like, my, my wife's from South India. She was born in, in India. And then, so she was raised in a, a, a you know, an Indian uh, Tamil household. They always take their shoes off the minute they walk in the door. And if, you know, if somebody w comes into our house with their shoes off, I mean, my wife, she's practiced now, so she's okay. But initially, you could see her flinch, like, you know, kind of. When the walking in the door with the shoes on. You know, people, ha you have little things. People in their, in their families, they raise the kid and they develop the cult culture in a certain way. And as they grow and they, if they start making decisions or going in a direction that's like contrary to the values you, you instilled in them. You know, as a parent, number one, you're, you're concerned. Number two, you feel a little hurt. Like, I, man, I thought... You really believed in what we stood for. And then there's the temptation, you know, to, to internalize that. Well, I believe Paul is going through this. I mean, you read some of the, the story here. He came to them. They received him so well. Chapter 3 says they, they believed the gospel. They were filled with the Spirit of God. They saw miracles. They probably suffered a little bit. Galatians 3, 4, although the translation differs from scholar to scholar, I think they did. I think it's suffering they went through. So it was legitimate. It was a genuine 
I mean, Holy Ghost breakout that, that resulted not only in people being filled with God and miracles, but also hardship and opposition. And Paul's like, look, you guys are legit. This is what it's all about. This is what happened in Jerusalem. This is what happened in Judea and Samaria. This is what's been happening to me. You're on the right track. And then all of a sudden he gets a report or he hears a, an update. And it's like, what the, what the devil's going on over there? You got, it's, like you got, it's like we didn't even have this at the start. It's like we have to start over again. I'm in labor again. Any, any uh, moms out there want to go through a labor again with the same kid? <laughs> I mean, come on. I mean, I've watched four births. I can't speak to the actual feelings that are going on there. But they look excruciatingly painful. And I, can't, I mean, once the child is out, you're like, oh, thank God, and you're delighted. But if someone came up to you and said, excuse me, man, we're going to have to do this again. You know, I mean, I don't think, I don't think you'd be like, okay, you know. And so you, you get a sense for the burden. Like, I, I did this already. Why are we doing this again exactly? Something did not connect. Or through time, whatever was right there has sort of just been fading in their vision. And so this is why Paul has to say, Become as I am. He has to remind them of who he is and what he did and what he went through because he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, I know that that word gets thrown a lot, around a lot in our generation, especially de depending on your, where you're from. Someone could be called an apostle, and it could have a meaning that probably doesn't have much to do with the Bible. But for Paul, being an apostle means he's a personal representative of Jesus. He's a personal representative of the risen Jesus, who is up there farther than you can reach or see, seated on the right hand of God, running the world, running the cosmos. And he sent Paul to go to these Galatians and get these jokers to understand that that God who runs the cosmos is the one that needs to be worshipped. Not the other ones that they made out of silver and precious metals and wood and stone. So Paul shows up on the scene and he makes this announcement. There's only one God. And his son Jesus is running the cosmos from his right hand. Now you guys have a decision to make. But I'm telling you, if you will declare him to be king and you'll surrender your lives to him, he will meet you and he'll put himself inside you. Oh, that's different. We're not used to that. So this happens. And, that, and, when he, and exactly what he says happens. They get filled with the Spirit. There's miracles. There's evidence to back it up. So Paul, not only as a personal representative of the Lord, but now as a kind of, as he says, like a parent to them, establishes them in the kingdom. Well, what did, you know, we just kind of mentioned this a minute ago, but parents... You guys are the ones that set the tone for the household, right? I mean, you're raising children up into a value system. You're raising them up into a culture. I mean, if you just, I mean, if you just, it's, I don't even, this probably isn't even possible, but if kids were just left with no parents, I don't, they probably couldn't survive as infants, right? But let's just say you threw kids out there at two or three years old and said, okay. Be a family. 
What are they going to do? They don't have any grid for what that means. What they need is a vision of family, and it has to come from somewhere. It has to come from Paul, is what he's saying. As a parent, it's his burden and his responsibility to set the stage for these children to grow up into God's household. As an apostle, he is a walking blueprint for what that looks like. His own life, his own identity becomes a model. Right? And again, he says, become as I am. Our tendency is to think, well, who do you think you are, buddy? But his response is, listen, I'm a personal messenger of Jesus for you. And if you want to get an idea of how the kingdom of God looks when it touches the ground, you got to pay attention. Now, probably we don't have a lot of scholars of ancient Greek religion here. or If you are, can I see your hand? Okay. The only reason I say that is because I just... Sometimes we don't really understand the significance of what happens when people got born again in the ancient world. Sometimes people in our day, they grow up in church, they have an idea of the Bible stories, they've gone to Sunday school, maybe they wander away, their teenage years or college, and then they come back to faith, but they already have a kind of a grid for it. You can't say that about, the, about these people living in the Gentile world. Their vision of God is so different. Their idea of worship consists of making some kind of sacrifice to a statue, uttering some ritual phrases, and then going on their merry way and living however they want, really. It's not even necessary to connect morality to ancient Greek worship. The philosophers were the ones who cared about morality. But the Greek cults, you know, worshiping Isis or Dionysus or different ones, they don't, I mean, morality is not a part of it, as is evidenced by the Greek gods themselves, <laughs> who are a jumbled mess of you, you know, like, they're more better, bitter and jealous and spiteful than people half the time. So there isn't any real morality component to this. So here's Paul. He says, you know, these gods are really not gods. There's only one true God, and you've got to worship him. You've got to serve him with your whole life. And they're like, okay, what do we do? Well, you got to pray. Okay. Anybody know how to pray around here? Like, they don't know. There's no grid. So Paul has to show them what that means. He says, well, you should, you know, you, wives and husbands, you should love each other and all that. Okay. How do we do that? He has to show them everything. Well, here's how you, what you should say. I mean, you notice some of the instructions in his letters? Fathers, don't provoke your children to wrath. I mean, this is like Parenting 101, but he has to go through it. He has to walk through it. He has to teach Love one another. Serve one another. Because they don't have a grid at all. I'm a terrible handyman. I was telling Drew this last night when he picked me up. I can't fix stuff, guys. Pray for me. I really, I don't have that kind of mechanical gene think it was lost somewhere so if it can't be remedied with duct tape I need to call someone or it needs to be replaced so imagine you know that's my that's my <laughs> when we first got married Carol and I we bought an entertainment center from Ikea I almost lost my salvation if you believe in that I'm not trying to say anything by that but it was, 
it's just like my nightmare is Ikea products. So if you can think, like if someone would tell me, if, if Drew was like, hey man, I need you to go out and um, we got a problem with the, uh, the plumbing. There's a pipe that needs to get replaced because there's a little pressure buildup and the valve is off. And so just go ahead and take care of it. I mean, he's, tell, like, he's telling me what to do, right? He said, yeah, just unlock the little nugget new, uh, uh, thingy there and uh, take the, cut the, you know, use your, uh, you know, the power, the, the saw and cut the pipe to the right line and then get your soldering iron and then put that thing around there and make sure that it's like, and then, you know, make sure that you, like, bro, I, I, I couldn't pick a soldering iron out of a box of tools. I, I don't know what you're talking about. So listen to me. He's telling me the right things to do, isn't he? He's giving me the instructions. He's giving me, in my mind, he's telling me the step-by-step methodology. But guys, I don't know what to do because I don't know what he's talking about. You know what he has to do? He has to come with me. He has to show me how to do it. He has to demonstrate this thing for me so that I have some idea what, what, he, what he means. When he says bleed the valve, or you know what, I'm, I don't even, that's probably an mechanic, auto mechanic term. I don't even know. See, this is the problem. I don't have a grid. I need a grid for this. I, I need, now, today you all have YouTube, which is wonderful. In the first century, there's no YouTube. So, how do we give a, a people a grid for what it means to be God's sons? Well, you need a son. Paul is a son who is able to provide a, a grid for the other children. Do you see what I'm saying? He becomes a model in himself, a blueprint, a, a, like a graphic living expression of Jesus Christ. I'm not saying he's perfect. I'm not saying Paul is, you know, some kind of weird other incarnate Jesus. I don't mean it like that. But his life is like a runway that other people can walk on to get to their destiny. It's the way he sees it. In one of his letters, he says apostles and prophets are the foundation of the church. It means they are the ones who put themselves lowest down here and get down and demonstrate the things on the earth and then other people can be built on top of them. An apostolic paradigm is not somebody who sits up here and tells everybody what to do. An apostolic paradigm is somebody who gets down underneath everyone and lifts them up. So that they can become the thing that God says they are. He says, become as I am. In other words, I came to you Gentile people. I didn't insist that you eat pork. I ate whatever you put in front of me. I didn't make you get circumcised. I lived like you, with the exception of the idolatry and all that. I started it. I I showed you that this stuff wasn't really relevant to your right standing by God, in front of God. Now, you have to follow my lead. Become like me because I became like you. You got to watch. You have to observe and you have to think about the example that I put in front of you guys. This was Paul's MO constantly. If you read 1 Thessalonians 2, he says, when he, to that church, he says, look, we became like a nursing mother to you. There, wow, what an example of tenderness, of, of gentleness, of intimacy, Paul says, we, me, and my, me and my guys, we became like nursing mothers. Like, that's not something you hear at men's conferences. Thomas, nursing mothers, what are you talking about? But it's like, look, we nurtured you. We, 
we weren't slave masters. We weren't up here beating you down. We came to you. We held you close. We, we gave you the nourishment that you could take in the moment. He says, we shared with you not just the gospel of God, but our very lives. The, the whole mentality Paul had was one of, look, I, everything is involved in this. He's not just a preacher. He's a parent. You don't parent your kids just by writing them instructions. Like, okay, here's what you do, and then you give them the instructions, and say, okay, we'll see you at dinner. Like, you, you have to raise them, right? You have to be with them. There's time that shapes their lives. It's not ego when Paul says, become as I am. It's mission. It's his, it's his apostolic commission that says, people need people with skin on to demonstrate the reality of the kingdom. When the kingdom of God touches the ground, it's family on mission. That's the way it looks. And so that family needs a grid. The grid comes through these leaders who are saying, hey, let me help you get oriented to the king. He's awesome. He's beyond your expectations. And what he's done in me is to give me an opportunity to demonstrate something for you and invite you into this way of life. So as he approaches the Galatians, this is why he's focusing on himself so much. He wants to show them how he didn't compromise. Right? Chapter 1 and 2. When they were pressing him, he says, I brought Titus up to Jerusalem. He was a Greek, but he didn't get circumcised. So listen, he took him into the Jerusalem, right, which is like the heart of Jewish country. He says, I brought my boy up in here to Jerusalem. And no, he did not get circumcised because I held out the truth of the gospel for you. In the most pressure-packed situation you can envision, I did not fold. And then Antioch. This is Peter, the rock. The one Jesus pointed to and, and said, tend my sheep in John 21. Peter, one of the pillars. But because of Peter's fear, he draws back, he stops eating meals with Gentile people. Even Barnabas, Paul says was led into that nonsense. And so that's why he said, I had to oppose him to his face. Because he was not walking according to the truth of the gospel. So even when Paul's saying all these stories about himself, you got to understand it's not just about himself. It's about what he represents in the kingdom of God, which is a, an apostolic worker whose identity is supposed to manifest the realities he's proclaiming. Now, just to slip this in here, it's kind of a, the same is supposed to be true for everybody. It's not just the apostles that are supposed to be like that. It's, it's everyone. But their role is to, like, demonstrate, give us a vision of what that looks like. So that's why Paul is so central here. He's a paradigm. He's not trying to blow his own horn. He's trying to remind the Galatians of God's strategy for them which is wrapped up in the reception of him. All right. So he says this, become as I am. I want to focus for a minute on that word become. Because this is what speaks to us about development. Right? Growth and transformation over time. How old is your daughter now? 
Four weeks? Okay. So pretty soon, like, what is around the six-month, five-month, you're going to start giving her food, like from a little spoon or something maybe? I forget the exact timing. But here's what's going to happen. Joe and his wife, what's your wife's name? Paige. Joe and Paige are going to get one of those cute little high chairs or a bouncy seat or something like that. And they're going to get, you know, the first time it's going to be so exciting. Like, she's going to have food. You know, and they're going to get the, their iPhone out and they're going to record it. And the, is that your baby's name? Eden is going to be like, you know, like, you know how kids are, and she's going to eat. And she's going to get that funny look on her face, like, I don't know what this is. And she's either going to like it or she's going to, you know, start spitting it out. But anyway, he's going to put a little bib on her, right? A little bib, a little cute bib. You know, and, and they're going to start feeding. She's going to go, oh, it's so cute. And, and then in a, couple, in a couple more months, they'll start putting food on, a, on her little tray. Little Cheerios, she'll get them, like, those puffs, what are they? Like vegetable, little puffy, th- you know what I mean, the healthier, whatever. And then the first birthday party's going to come. You bet, bro, they're going <laughs> to plop one of those chocolate suckers down right in front of her, and she's going to go like this, and she's going to put it in her hair, and wipe it all over her face, and it's going to be adorable. It's going to be on Facebook. Make sure you follow on Instagram. It's going to be all over that, that place. Trust me. I've done it four times. It's fantastic. And, and you're going to look at that. Oh, this is so adorable. Oh, what a delight. You guys must be so happy. Look at what a precious child. Listen to me, though. If we still put in a bib on old Eden when she's 17, we got a problem, right? If Joe and Paige are still cutting Eden's meat when she's 24, here you go, sweetie. They're still doing the airplane, <laughs> you know. You know, I mean, when, when, when Eden's 24, we got problems, guys. When you're six months old, it's cute. And you're not troubled by the messes because you know you're expected. But if that doesn't change, now we start talking about developmental disabilities, like people who don't change, people who can't grow, people who don't develop, and that's not normal. That's not what is intended for people, and in the kingdom, it's the same thing. You have to become. God says, you know, and you guys all read through it in Galatians 3, you are sons, you are righteous by faith. It's not the, Now, what Paul is saying is, now be that. You can't, you can't just settle for the intellectual information. You have to believe that it's true and now become that thing. Because God has opened up the way for it to happen. He's deposited within you everything you need for it. By by faith and by grace, you have have access to his bright presence, his powerful, energetic spirit, spirit. So look, he hasn't left you without resources. And so now at some point, you're just going to have to decide. Become as I am, he says. Yes, I want you to agree with me about all these things. That you are righteous. That you are adopted into God's family. That you become a free adult who, who is capable of exercising that freedom and making choices that honor God. You're not anymore to, to be just a little... Uh, elementary school student who has to be who has to have supervision no you're you're alive in me you you have 
what you need. Now, you have to learn this to become this. You have to perceive it. I mean, sometimes we talk about faith. But how do, what is faith actually? What does it mean to believe? And, and, and part of it has to do, A.W. A. Tozer used to say, faith is really the setting of the gaze of the soul upon Christ. It's the constant directing of our gaze to him. And, then, and in whatever situation or circumstance we're facing, the answer and the remedy to the challenge is almost always the same. It's to fix our gaze on the person of Jesus as he makes himself aware, as he makes himself discernible to us. Yes, through his word. Yes, through prayer. Yes, but also through the people that are in our lives to help us map this out. You've got to perceive that. You have to see it. This is, this is what it means to, to be in Christ apart from law. It's not the things that you did to make you worthy. It's the thing that he did that qualified you to be a part of the family. And then now, like in Ephesians and, and Colossians, you have to walk worthy. You say, but I'm not worthy. That's right, but you have to walk worthy. Well, that sounds like I'm pretending. Nope. It's Christ in you. You guys read that, right? Galatians 2.20. It's no longer I who live. It's Christ who lives in me. It's the only way to walk worthy is to have the Messiah of Israel walking in you. That's, that's how it works. God's king within you by the Spirit. Well, now that's a little bit of a different scenario, isn't it? Than me just trying harder. Anybody ever been there? Trying to kick this, I'm trying to change that, trying to be, I'll just try harder. Good idea. <laughs> just kidding. It's a terrible idea. Because if you could try harder and pull it off, then you, you wouldn't need this great salvation that we talk about. For you to be saved, you have to admit you need saving, right? Look, there's really no way. Like, it, I mean, I, I, he, the mindset we need is a different one. The mindset we need is one of we, we're different because he's within us. Now, because he's within us, he calls us sons and daughters. He calls us heirs, meaning you have a right to something now. In the kingdom, you have an inheritance. What is that? It's a promise that's coming your way as a result of a death that's taken place. Does that sound familiar? It's the gospel. We have an inheritance. And so we have to become it. This is what we mean when we talk about like a real sense of participation in Christ. And realizing that he is not just looking for us to come and sing songs and you know, pray par- prayers in a church service, which is wonderful. I love it. But you guys, Ames needs you to become what you are. This city and this region needs you as a people to become God's family, his household in this area. And for the characteristics and attributes of the king himself to be fleshed out in you. So when Paul is urging these Galatians to change, you'll notice he doesn't say try harder. <laughs> right? He uses a different word. It's evolutionary in a way. I'm not talking about the scientific theory of evolution, but it's developmental is what I mean. He says become as I am. It's a process. The word he uses here uh, 
is where we get our word morph. You ever watch the Power Rangers? Anybody? The mighty Morphin Power Rangers? I kind of missed that. I was a little too old for that when the Power Rangers really became. But morph, you know, morph has to do with the, you, yeah, you move from one thing to another, but not immediately. It's just, it just, it happens kind of like through a process. Uh, a very related word is, is in uh, Romans 12. When Paul says that they ought to be transformed by the renewing of their minds. Like, don't be, don't, don't be conformed to this world, to this system, to this age, but be transformed. That's the word where we get our English word metamorphosis. Where you are something, but you're actually being morphed into something else. This is Paul's mindset about growth and development in Jesus Christ. Romans 8.29 perhaps gives the, the absolute clearest expression of this. When he says the ones God called, he, he, he predestined, the ones he elected, etc. And, and then he says they were predestined to be conformed. It's another version of this word with a, a, a prefix. Conformed to the image of the Son of God. Now that's not just an individual thing. It's actually a corporate reality. When the Bible talks about the body of Christ, they're saying that we as a unit, the, these authors are saying that we as a unit have an integral relationship with Jesus. And in as much as we are expressing him in the right way, we are being conformed to him. Now guys, if we know that's our destiny, then why would we waste time going after something else. You know, when I, yesterday I got on a plane, the, the plane flew from Chicago to Des Moines. Des Moines was my destination. So when I got on a plane, I didn't get on a plane to Miami. I mean, however tempted I might have been to kind of <laughs> slide over to the other gate, like, yeah, I'm, I'm on this plane, I lost my ticket. <laughs> Why, guys? Because Miami is out of my, out of the way. It's, it's not, it's not on the way to my destination. I'm going toward this. This is the end. This is the objective. I'm not going to take some route that takes me on a detour. We have a destination together as a unit. And that's to be conformed to the likeness of God's son, Jesus. And so when Paul says, become like me, what he's saying is, hey, orient your life now around this. And ask questions like, what is happening in you that does not actually fit in this mission, in this destiny, the thing stamped on us by the Spirit of God? And the more we resist it, the more we're actually becoming like who we're not. You ever have a friend like you've known all your life, and then the two of you guys go to summer camp together? And all, the, all of a sudden, the friend becomes someone else. You ever had that experience? Like, what? Or, you know, you, you got a buddy, and uh, the buddy, buddy hates Chinese food, right? And, it's, you know, oh, and you know this, because you've had conversations about it. How salty it is, how it makes you feel bloated, you know, whatever. You, you have conversations about it. You know that buddy doesn't like Chinese food. But man, 
that girl from algebra walks up and asks Buddy, hey, you want to get Chinese? And all of a sudden, Buddy's like, you know, I love Chinese. <laughs> like, bro, what are you, you know, that's not you. You're being something that you're not. Guys, we got to stop that. If, if we're really hearing Paul in this letter, he's not saying become something you can't become. He's saying become something God says you already are. And stop trying not to be that. Because it doesn't connect. It, it's not what God says about us. And if we're going to live our lives for the gospel's sake, then we got to reorient our ways around what he says is true and what, around what he says is right. Because the goal, as Paul says it in 4.19, again, using another word that's related to this, he says, he is in labor until Christ is formed in you. He's, the Lord is delighted with infants, but in the end of the day, he's looking for people that bear the image of a man, Jesus Christ. And we're all developing and growing up into this. It's what he's stamped upon us through the gospel, whether we realize it or not. And so the, the idea is now is to realize it, to be convinced. And then as a group, as a unit, to come before God and say, we want this. We want to be conformed to your son. What does that mean? How do we do it? What does that look like? Lead us in this path, Lord. It's the target of gospel work, actually. It's, it's not just getting people to sign a response card at an evangelistic tent crusade or whatever. I mean, that's great. But as we it's the beginning. And what we need now is a vision of who we are. So that by God's grace and through faith and given the resources of a reigning king and a spirit deposited within, we can commit ourselves to this process of becoming this, the expression of Jesus Christ in the earth. Not to replace him, but to demonstrate him. I mean, and this explains so many of Jesus' teachings. If you love one another, then the world will know that my Father sent me. What is that about? That's about a cultural reality that is established in the midst of God's people. It's about a family understanding its identity and then putting it into practice by the grace of God. Forgiving, loving, extending mercy and hospitality. I mean, you follow me, guys? So Galatians 4, this exhortation really sets the the bar for the rest of this letter. And so tonight, we're going to get into a little bit more about this. What does it look like to put this into practice? How do people get themselves situated in this work, in this mission, in this process of becoming, as, as Paul says he is in these specific ways? So I really apologize I didn't have three points, and they weren't alliterated. I am, I'm not very good at that. But hopefully, you know, my main vision today was to just kind of cast, to set a tone, right? To kind of put an atmosphere in place and to generate a mindset, like a way of thinking, a way of perceiving who we are. So whether we're college students or plumbers or musicians, look, the reality is we are a part of one another. And there's something at stake 
in the way that we uh, respond to these words. And with God's help, we're going to see his kingdom demonstrated in our lives as we are increasingly conformed to the pattern of his son, Jesus. Amen. Lord, thank you, God, for just the time to get into this this morning. Uh, Lord, I, I'm so grateful, God, for these folks, and I pray that your, your touch would be upon them, Lord. As they go their ways, Lord, I just, I'm, I'm praying, God, for this vision of becoming like I am, as Paul says it, being conformed to the image of the Son of God, that Christ would be fully formed in them, that it would reach them, it would touch them deeply, it would stir them, Lord, to want to explore the realities of Jesus that are available to us in the Spirit. In his name I pray. Amen. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this week's sermon. For more information about LifePoint Church, please visit www.livethemessage.org.